Yesterday we finished describing the metabolism of glucose, carbohydrates, and we talked about lipids, and we finished talking about ketone bodies. Now let's see what happens with the proteins. We're going to talk about proteins, some other nutrients, vitamins, and uh, finally uh, a little bit of en energy consumption. So the proteins, what happened with the proteins in the digestive system, they are broken down by the different enzymes that we have studied and into amino acids. The amino acids are not stored. Instead, they get oxidized to produce ATPs or they are used to make new proteins like enzymes. Enzymes, digestive enzymes, maybe some types of hormones, um, the same enzymes that the cells have inside their cytoplasm for different purposes. So the amino acids, the proteins that we eat, they are broken down into amino acids and they are used as energy or used to make new proteins. Different functions of the proteins are here to have a better idea of how was the destination of these amino acids. We make proteins that are going to be part of our structure, like the collagen, which is a protein that we find in the connective tissue, bone, keratin in the skin, hair, fingernails, or proteins may be regulatory, like hormones, like insulin, for instance, neurotransmitters. Neurotransmitters, some of them are proteins. Contractile proteins, like in the muscles, actin and myosin, the myofilaments, the myofibrils that we have in the skeletal muscle. Immunology, antibodies. Immunoglobulins are proteins. Transport like hemoglobin to carry oxygen it's a protein and catalytic like enzymes that we have described in digestive system like salivary amylase so a lot of things a lot of things a lot of different proteins that have to be built or replaced as long as we go every day in our lives and the cells are replaced uh, every day so from that follows that we need to consume a number of proteins every day to replace all these things. So the catabolism of proteins yields two amino acids. Now these amino acids, what happens with them is or they are used to make new proteins or they may be turned into another type of amino acids there are chemical reactions called transamination by which one type of amino acid turns into a different type that happens in the liver all the time. And the enzymes for these uh, reactions are called ALTAST. We usually call them liver enzymes. And that's one of the things that we ask when someone has hepatitis, for instance. We assess the condition of the liver cells by asking or measuring in the blood the presence of these enzymes. 
or the amino acids may be oxidized to generate ATPs, which is not the rule. We don't use amino acids for energy unless we need it. The sequence is glucose, fatty acids, and at the end, proteins. And anabolism, which is a synthesis, is about making new proteins starting from the amino acids that we get in the diet. We see here the Krebs cycle, which is one of the main reactions in the metabolism that we described on Tuesday. And there are different points and different intermediates are uh, detailed, like the oxaloacetic acid, like the fumaric acid, the succinyl-CoA, alpha-cletobutyric acid. And we highlight it with, with the purpose of showing how these products, which are the intermediates in the Krebs cycle, they can derive from amino acids. All the compounds listed in yellow boxes are amino acids. So, if we have aspartic acid or asparagine amino acids, they may be turned into oxaloacetic acid and enters into the Krebs cycle. In the same way, others like the phenylalanine may turn into tyrosine and the tyrosine may enter to the Krebs cycle. So in that way, the amino acids may be used as a source of energy to produce ATPs. And you see many other points where all the types of amino acids may enter into the Krebs cycle. As I said before, this doesn't happen as a rule, only happens whenever we need it. Like in cases of extreme starvation, high metabolic needs, where proteins have to be used uh, as sources of ATPs. But there are some clue molecules, like crossroads in the metabolic pathways. And there are three compounds. Three compounds are, are very important in metabolism. They are make, uh, these, these molecules, glucose phosphate, pyruvic acid, and acetyl coenzyme A, are like clue places. They are in key places in the metabolic pathways because from here, we can switch from carbohydrates to fats, from fats to proteins very easily. They are like switching points in the cross, uh, in the pathways of the metabolism. For instance, glucose phosphate is important because it is involved in the production or synthesis of glycogen, so when we store glycogen in the liver, or when we go in opposite direction to release glucose from glycogen. It is also important in the synthesis of nucleic acids. Remember nucleic acids, they have uh, monosaccharide, a pentose, ribose, deoxyribose, and of course for glycolysis, because this glucose phosphate is one of the intermediates in glycolysis. Pyruvic acid is involved in production of lactic acid, production of alanine, which is an amino acid. And here we have the connection with amino acids and proteins catabolism. And in gluconeogenesis, which is defined, as we said on Tuesday, the creation of glucose from a non-carbohydrate source. And acetyl-CoA, or acetyl-coenzyme A, 
is involved in the beginning of the Krebs cycle. So when acetyl-CoA is present and oxygen is present, the pathway goes into Krebs cycle. And at the same time, the CoA, the acetyl-CoA, is involved in the production or synthesis of lipids. And here we see all these crossroads and where these molecules are. For instance, the glucose 6-phosphate, we have it here in number one, and a double arrow without two directions because it's involved in the production of glycogen and release of glucose to the blood. Production of DNA, RNA, and the glucose 6-phosphate enter into glycolysis. And if we follow glycolysis, we will get to pyruvic acid. Pyruvic acid is involved in production of a lactic acid. If no oxygen is present, it goes in that way. Can be produced starting from alanine, which is an amino acid, and can enter into the Krebs cycle, or in the presence of oxygen may give place to acetyl-CoA, and the acetyl-CoA will get into the Krebs cycle. The acetyl-CoA, it is connected to production of fatty acids and ketone bodies, triglycerides, phospholipids. So if we consume fats for energy, we follow this road. Triglycerides are broken down into fatty acids and the fatty acids turn into acetyl-CoA. In the presence of oxygen, we're ready to enter into the Krebs cycle and make a lot of ATPs. All these crossroads will lead to the final step, which is this one, electron transport chain and production of huge amounts of ATPs. Now, how all these nutrients actually work in uh, circulation, if we think about different uh, stages or times, when we eat and after we eat, like let's say we have our meal at 8 a.m. in the morning and next two hours our blood is full of glucose, nutrients, everything we ate in the breakfast. But then after closer to noon, 11, 12, all those nutrients have been absorbed. And now we are reaching the point at which we need a second meal, lunch, in order to get more nutrients. So that's why we divide two periods, absorptive state and post-absorptive. Absorptive right away, right after we eat, and all the nutrients are digested and absorbed. And then post-absorptive, when we are not eating for a while and we are depleting uh, the nutrients that, uh, that we ate in the previous meal. So during that moments, during those moments, there are adaptations in the metabolism. During the absorptive state, all the nutrients that we ate will get into the bloodstream. And if we ate carbohydrates, well, glucose, now it's in the bloodstream, ready to be used. Ready to be used and to produce lots of ATPs. That's what we see here. 
we see the gastrointestinal tract and the arrows are showing digestion and absorption. And we see all the nutrients present in the blood, amino acids, glucose, and triglycerides. Glucose is circulating, ready to be used by many tissues, all the tissues of our body, which oxidizes the glucose and gets the ATP they need. Some of this glucose is stored as glycogen in the muscle as we see here, skeletal muscle. Some of the glucose will enter the liver in step number two here, and it will be stored as glycogen also. If there is an excess of glucose, let's say if we ate like uh, five or six slices of bread, that's a little too much for the morning, have a lot of carbohydrates, so you will fulfill or fill up your liver and muscle with carbohydrates and glycogen, you're full. But then it's still an excess of glucose. Where it goes? It goes with triglycerides. And in step number three, they'll be taken to your adipose tissue. And if you keep doing that, you will start gaining weight. After two or three weeks, you will notice you start gaining weight. What else? Amino acids are used to build up more proteins, build up muscle, for instance, replace the old cells, and can enter into the liver to be used as energy, production of ATPs, or broken down and excreted as urea. So all these things happen during the absorptive state, right after you eat, in the next hours, this is happening in the body. But then as long as the hours go by, then you enter into post-absorptive state. Question? So what if you uh, take amino acid as a supplement? If you take amino acids as supplement. As a supplement. Right? As a supplement. Then, uh, like getting it from natural types of food. Uh-huh. Does it still work the same, like building up muscle and stuff like that? No. It will just be excreted as urea. Yeah. As urea? A urea in the urine, yeah. So what happens with the proteins is they have two, two destinations. So you use them, you break it down into amino acids, and those amino acids are used for replacing old cells, production of enzymes, whatever you need. And if not, they are used as energy. But we don't use that as a primary source of energy. So the amino acids are broken down by the liver and turned into urea, which is a nitrogen-containing um, nitrogen molecule, which what it does is eliminate those excess of amino acids that we have in our body. That's why it's not uh, useful to take supplements of amino acids if you don't need it. Like, if you're just having a regular life, not, not, you're not working out, you're not uh, trying to build up muscle, you don't need supplements of amino acids if you have a balanced diet. But if you are building up your muscle, you're working out like three times in a week, weight, uh, lifting weights and doing all this type of stuff, well, you probably need amino acids a little bit more, but you can get it from the diet. I mean, you don't need special supplements. Supplements are given when someone is in a starvation, extreme conditions, then you need those additional. Or if you have something in your intestines that are not absorbing the amino acids or these type of things. And you notice when you eat excessive amount of meat, 
that urea is producing high and huge amounts, and they are excreted in the urine. And you can smell the urine like containing ammonia. The typical and characteristic smell of the urine is with the contents of ammonia. That means there's a lot of urea, a lot of amino acids that you're not using, you are just wasting them in the, in the urine. And during the post-absorptive state, all these nutrients have been used by most of the tissues. But now we're reaching the point at which our body, and especially some organs, need energy, need to get energy. If you don't have more glucose circulating in the blood, well, your body will start taking glucose from glycogen that you have stored in the liver or in the muscles. And that's what is shown here. If you see the circulation here, this square, red square, there's nothing in there. There's no glucose circulating. So the glucose have to come from the liver. This big arrow here. The liver will start breaking down glycogen, step number one, into glucose. And glucose is released to the circulation. That's, that's the reason why we store glycogen. Because as soon as after four, six hours of not eating anything, we, start, we need glucose. Who needs glucose the most? This guy down here. Glucose is the primary source of energy for the neurons. What else happens? Well, um, the muscles will need energy. The muscles will use glucose initially, but then the muscle will start using fatty acids. So fatty acids are, need, are needed by the muscle. Step number five here, fatty acids are used as energy source for the muscles. The muscles primarily, they use and consume fatty acids. Like when we are walking, imagine you walk at a slow pace, 20, 30 minutes, your muscles are burning fat. They are using fatty acids. They are not using glucose, they are using fatty acids. They will use glucose when you run like 100 meters and maximum speed, then muscles will use glucose. But if you walk for 20, 30 minutes, you are primarily using fatty acids. And the glycogen from the muscle is also used in step number nine, and it goes to peruvic acid, production of ATPs, or lactic acid that goes to the blood. Where's the fatty acids coming from? They're coming from the adipose tissue. See this adipose tissue number two? It's breaking down triglycerides, turning into glycerol fatty acids that enter to the circulation, go through the blood, and they are used by the heart, by other tissues also, by the muscles, we say. And that's the logic of burning fat. We're burning fat. We're using the triglycerides we have in the adipose tissue for energy. So all these processes are adaptations of the metabolism in different stages, absorptive and post-absorptive. And here we see some of them like glycogenolysis, which is the glycogen breakdown. That happens in the hepatocytes and the skeletal muscle. And they are regulated by hormones like glucagon and epinephrine. In the same way, lipolysis, protein breakdown, And this is shown in the sequence that it happens. Number one, number two, number three. In third place, we use uh, the proteins. We use the proteins uh, as sources of energy only in case we need it. 
And there's another one, gluconeogenesis also here that happens in extreme situations also, where the hepatocytes will take non-carbohydrate molecules to turn them into glucose. Fasting and starvation. If that period that we're not eating anything takes many hours, then all these processes will continue. And we'll start using the glycogen, then using the adipose tissue, but the disadvantage is that we make ketone bodies, and the ketone bodies, as we say, they can be toxic, they give symptoms. And that's actually a protection mechan mechanism of protection that the body says, well, we're getting this, uh, we're reaching this point, you need to eat, get your regular meals. You start having headaches and all these symptoms. Estervation is extreme situation where we don't eat anything um, for weeks or months would be too much, but sometimes it happens, sometimes it happens, and um, if you have the chance to see those pictures that are sometimes shown as um, how they found the people after the Allies uh, took uh, over the concentration camps in the Second World War. You could see the condition of these people, completely emaciated, thinner as I mean, just bone, muscle, and skin. That is extreme starvation. And that shows how they actually started consuming the adipose tissue, finish all the adipose tissue, and the muscle started to break down to provide fuel for, uh, for energy. So glycogen stores are depleted in a few hours. Like I said, you eat in the morning until the afternoon. If you don't eat anything, you are depleting your reserves of glycogen. But then triglycerides and proteins in that sequence, first triglycerides and then proteins, those are the ones that provide energy for a long time, for a long time. And the goal is survival. Nervous tissue, red blood cells, they use glucose, and that's why. That's why the triglycerides and amino acids, they have to be turned into glucose. So the brain and the red blood cells use glucose for um, ATP production. But as we said, ketone bodies are produced. The ketone bodies can be used. They are actually used by the cells as energy. But then all the metabolic products of the ketone bodies, when they are used, will give all these symptoms that uh, uh, gives acidosis and uh, some of the symptoms that we mentioned. Questions to this point? Heat and energy balance. All these chemical reactions, all these chemical reactions, we say catabolic reactions, anabolic reactions, implies transfer of energy. And the energy transfer is not perfect, not 100% is turned into ATPs. Some of this energy is turned into heat. And there is heat loss. But that get, gets balanced by heat production by different mechanisms. One of them is a contraction of the muscles, like shivering will give a uh, make energy. The metabolic rate, this concept is 
the overall rate at which all these metabolic reactions use energy. And being more specific, there's an index that we call basal metabolic rate, BMR, which is used to standardize and to be able to compare uh, the different consumption of energy uh, or intake of energy in terms of the metabolic rate. Metabolic rate means, or this index is the amount of energy, the amount of energy that the body needs when we are resting, quiet, and not eating. Imagine yourself laying on the couch doing nothing at all, not even watching TV. Just close, eyes closed and just don't move any muscle at all. Then you're using your basal metabolic rate. So that is the standard in adults. We have this value, 1,200 to 1,800 calories. That's how we measure the energy, calories. Being more exact, we measure this in terms of body weight. This is different, male and female, 24 and 22 calories per kilogram. But then there's a basal. We need to add more calories to support our daily activities, like minimal activities, just get enough from the couch, go into the table, eat, go back to the couch, get enough from the couch, go to the bathroom, and then go to the bed, period. Well, you need energy for that. You need additional intake of energy. But the food that we eat can be converted in energy and calories. And so this is the perfect diet. When you get the numbers well balanced off, if you are doing nothing like this, you cannot consume more than 12,000 or 2,000 calories a day. And if you go to any fast food, you easily reach 2,000 calories in one meal. So imagine that. If you're not doing anything, and you go twice a day to some restaurant or fast food place, and you consume 3,000 calories, and you have positive, positive balance. What do you expect? You have to, your body will store them, all those nutrients in, in, in adipose tissue. Or in the other way around, if you want to use or burn your triglycerides from the adipose tissue, well, you start doing more physical activity. More physical activity and control your intake of food in terms of energy. There's no need for diet pills or magical compounds that tell you lose weight in a week, or in two weeks, in one month. There's no need for that. That's an easy way. And it's usually not true. Yeah. They help, they may help. Yeah, that's true, they may help. As long as you keep these concepts of the balance of your intake and consumption. So metabolic rate is affected by all these factors. Exercise, of course, depending on the amount of hormones that we're producing. People with hyperthyroidism, this uh, thyroid gland sometimes produces excessive amount of thyroid hormone. Well, that thyroid hormone increases the metabolic rate. These people, they have a consumption of energy of about 5,000, 6,000 calories. Consumption of energy. Without doing any physical activity. So they get thin, they, they lose weight a lot. 
just because of this balance. They are in negative balance. Depends on the nervous system, body temperature, of course, the food that we eat, and the age is important. The age is important. You see how children eat sometimes? They are able to eat the whole refrigerator in one afternoon. When they eat and eat and eat, they eat and one hour, after an hour they say, I'm hungry. How come you're hungry? You just ate. They have a high metabolic rate. But then go and see a 60, 70 year old, they just eat a little bit, they don't need much, they don't want, just they don't want to eat. They don't need. Many other things like sleeping pattern, climate, gender, many other things will factor, are factors for consumption of energy. These are ways that the heat may be transferred to the environment, and that's actually what we have when um, uh, the way that we keep the body temperature. The body temperature is just how this energy turns into heat after the, all the chemical reactions that we have in our body. Uh, conduction, convection, thermal radiation, evaporation are different ways that the heat may be lost or dissipated to the environment. And of course, this is important when there are problems like fever, where the body temperature is increased, not because of the metabolic pathway, but other external factors like infections. This is controlling the hypothalamus by thermoreceptors. We spoke about this in 48, I think, when we did homeostasis and how this works. Um, by negative feedback is controlled by negative feedback. Conservation of energy um, and production of heat. This is just a loop. negative feedback loop. So we can divide this, the, the total consumption of energy, how we spend the energy that we uh, consume or we eat in our daily intake of nutrients. 60% goes to the basal metabolic rate. 30, 35% is spent as physical activity and the rest is to keep the body temperature. Now, the hypothalamus, the hypothalamus control, controls hunger, controls hunger and this cycle of um, feeling hungry, feeling satisfied, we're full, we say, and that, all that is controlled at the central level, but mediated by hormones. One of the hormones is leptin. Leptin is a hormone that is produced by the adipocytes, all the cells in adipose tissue and it actually helps to regulate the amount of adipose tissue that we have in our body. There are others, a central level like neuropeptide Y that stimulates food intake, or melanocortin that inhibits food intake, but the leptin is one of the, uh, the important hormones that control the hunger. And how it works, it is produced when the adipose tissue is getting it's increasing in amount, in mass. So it's like a signal sent, being sent to the brain and say, hey, there's a lot of adipose tissue, don't eat more. That's enough. And the leptin is produced, it goes to the hypothalamus, and the hypothalamus says, decrease your food intake because we have enough. There are some cases of obesity where 
deficiency of leptin has been found. Talking about pathologic obesity, people that they eat and they don't understand why, but they still feel hungry even after they are they know and they see they're gaining weight and weight and weight, but they, they keep eating the same amount. And that may be because of a deficiency of this hormone, the leptin, that is not controlling the loop about hunger and feeling satisfied. The feeling of, um, of uh, feeling satisfied or still hungry, it's not all only controlled by the leptin. There are many things at central level that will work as factors. Yeah. Neuropeptide Y is a substance that is produced at the central level in some neurons. And they also are produced, and they are stimulated by factors like, let's say you have uh, some preference for some food, and the neuropeptide Y is produced and it stimulates your brain to send orders to increase your food intake. So that's produced at central level. Leptin is produced by the adipose tissue. Neuropeptide Y is produced by some neurons. So among the nutrients that we are describing, we have described carbohydrates, lipids, proteins, uh, but let's say some words about the other nutrients that we need. Approximately, these are recommendations of the food that we eat how we can determine how much calories or how much energy comes from each of the nutrients. 50-60% from carbohydrates, calories from carbohydrates. Less than 30% from fats and about 12-15% from proteins. So that's how we should distribute the, um, the foods according to the amount of energy that they will provide. Guidelines are guidelines. They tell you approximate levels or amount of nutrients that you should eat, but that changes a lot. Changes a lot in different populations. We have some guidelines here. There may be different guidelines in other parts of the world uh, because of the different types of diets and the different type of composition of the basic diets. But in general, there are basic, basic guidelines that are listed here that they may work at any place of the world and with different diets, with, of course, a, a normal variation that exists in different places. Variety of foods first. One of the purposes must be to keep a healthy weight, which is measured in terms of body mass index. That's another index that we use to uh, determine if we are okay, or if we, we are overweight, or if we are reaching obesity. Low fat, low saturated fat, low cholesterol, that is a rule that applies to all of them, and plenty of vegetable, fruits, and grains. Sugars in moderation. That, those basic guidelines apply to any part of the world with, of course, the local or regional variations of the different diets. Minerals and vitamins. Minerals are inorganic elements that the body needs, especially for enzymatic reactions. We're talking about calcium, phosphorus, iron, 
which is important for red blood cells, hemoglobin, iodine, which is important for thyroid hormone, We take what we need, and if we get excessive amount of these minerals, they are just eliminated and excreted by the kidneys in the urine. Vitamins. We have seen importance of vitamins like NAD, FAD, they come from vitamin B. Um, they participate in chemical reactions that are involved in production of energy, but by themselves, the vitamins do not provide energy. They do not provide energy by themselves. They participate in reactions involved in production of energy only. But they are important. The participation is important. They are divided in two types, water-soluble, basically vitamin B and C, and fat-soluble. That's depending on the chemical structure, A, D, E, and K. Some deficiencies related with these vitamins. Vitamin A is needed for chemical reactions related to the vision. The retinol, retinaldehyde, opsin, rhodopsin, those pig pigments that we have in the retina that allows vision, color vision, um, and um, night vision, they come from vitamin A. And if we have a deficiency, that leads to night blindness. Immune system also relies on vitamin A. All these growth factors, interleukins, there are some uh, coenzymes that derive from vitamin A. Vitamin D is needed for calcium absorption. It's needed at the intestinal level. We need vitamin D so we can absorb calcium from our diets. A deficiency of vitamin D will lead to lack of bone mineralization. The calcium cannot be absorbed and therefore cannot be used for production of bones. And we have diseases like rickets in children, which we have a picture here with some of the signs. Practically the, the bones get so weak, they're soft and they bend. And the same thing, bone demineralization or lack of mineralization in adults, if it happens in adults, is called osteomalacia which means weak bones. Vitamin K and vitamin C. Vitamin K is important for the liver. The liver produces proteins that are known as clotting factors. Clotting factors, they are important for black coagulation. They go from 1 to 13 in Roman numerals. Factors 2, 7, 9, and 10, they require vitamin K. If we have a deficiency of vitamin K, we will have easy bleeding. We can bleed out and die, especially kids. Newborns receive an injection of vitamin K always because sometimes they are born with deficiency of the vitamin and they show signs of bleeding just to make sure they receive an injection of vitamin K right after they are born. Vitamin C is necessary for connective tissue production of collagen. And the deficiency 
It's manifested as a disease called scurvy. Vitamin B, we have seen NAD, FAD. NAD comes from niacin, which is the vitamin B3. A deficiency of the vitamin niacin is a disease called pellagra. And the signs are the three Ds, dermatitis, which is a skin, inflammation, diarrhea, and dementia. Thiamine, or B1, is a vitamin essential for function of the nerves, carbohydrate metabolism. Problem deficiency called beriberi is manifested as muscle wasting, impaired reflexes. This uh, thiamine, vitamin B1, is present in rice. Folic acid, which is vitamin B9. This one is important for production of DNA. If there's a deficiency, the problem is a type of anemia, known macrocytic anemia. And vitamin B12, or cyanocobalamin, is important for the nerve function and also for production of red blood cells. A deficiency of this vitamin B2, B12 leads to anemia, a type of anemia called pernicious anemia. And there may be other problems like memory loss, weak necks, ataxia, which means uh, loss of equilibrium, changes in the personality, and sometimes dementia, which is temporal. It's temporary. It lasts as long as deficiency is present. We give supplements and they're restored and the person recovers of that particular dementia or changes in the personality. And finally, some words about obesity. Obesity is defined, actually as a 30% or more, 25%. Or more in terms of body mass index body mass index and because of excessive amount of fat now how obesity happens is very complex it's not a single factor there are many factors um, some of them are psychosocial physiological and even psychological uh, social environment the economic situation, there are many factors, it's very complex, the problem of obesity. But there are points where we can do something. And the risks of obesity are a sort of diseases and conditions. Among them, cardiovascular. Cardiovascular like heart attack, atherosclerosis, um, and this one increased risk for cancer. What type of cancer? All of them. All of them. The person with obesity increases the risk for developing any type of cancer. This is a graph that shows um, the correlation between the body mass index, and that's how we measure the obesity, um, and the relative risk for 
different types of cancer. The red line shows all types of cancer. And you see how this curve starts to increase starting at 30, which means obesity. 30 or more and the curve goes up. So your risk is increased for all types of cancer. And we break this line into different types of cancer and we see the same thing. Like the yellow one is colorectal, colon cancer. Colon cancer is very related to obesity. It's one of those the relations is very clear. But it works for all types of cancer, as I said. So that's one of the things that uh, we keep in mind when we try to prevent obesity, so the different things and measures, uh, and especially in kids. We try to uh, prevent obesity in kids because if children are obese and they reach adolescence being obese, well, it will be very hard for them to lose weight afterwards. Very, very hard. Why? Because during childhood, we have a determined number of adipocytes that are still growing in number because we're growing in kids. Everything is growing and developing. But if the kid is obese or overweight, we are forcing the adipose tissue and stimulating the adipose tissue to divide and divide more because we need room to store the, uh, the triglycerides. And so they develop more, increased number of adipocytes. We get to adolescence, everything is over, growth is over. So if you have in adolescence like 100 adipose cells, you will remain with those 100 adipose cells, adipocytes for the rest of your life. Instead, if you're not obese and you have like 10 cells only and you reach adolescence with 10 cells, you will have 10 cells for the rest of your life. That's how you see sometimes people that, adults, you see them eat and eat and they are able to eat one, two, three large pizzas and never gain weight. And they say, why you don't gain weight? I eat the same amount and after two weeks I'm like, increase weight. Which probably you have more number of adipocytes than the other guy. And that's what is important in kids to prevent obesity and they, to prevent that they reach adolescence being obese. Because then after it's very hard. It is still possible, but it is much harder to make them lose weight and reach the uh, healthy weight. So if you're super fat as a kid, but then like right before you become an adult, you lose all the weight, then you have a lot of um, adipose? Yeah, it depends on at what point. If you reach adolescence and adulthood being still obese, then losing weight after that, it is possible, but then it's hard to keep the weight. But isn't it better to lose it like right before, because then you could eat a lot and you won't gain a lot of weight? It is always good to lose all the weight before you reach adolescence. Always before. But wouldn't that be better than the regular person who's like skinny all their life? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course it is, there's less risk for cancer. So like, I think it's kind of like the same question, but uh, if, if you were like a kid and you were really skinny, and then when you, as you grow older, you end up just getting really fat, like you still have those 10 adipocytes, but like you just. Yeah, the thing is that. Even in adults, yeah. uh, the adipose tissue has stem cells. So if you start forcing yeah. your adipose cells later in adulthood, if you force them, like eating a lot of fats and triglycerides, well, those stem cells will start dividing and give place to more adipocytes. And you still you get fat. You still get fat. But it's not the same. A kid that has a lot of adipocytes, it's much easier for that person to gain weight, much easier. 
and it's hard for them to lose weight. These um, graphs show the impact of obesity and how it's been changing along the time. You see, compare 1994 in obesity, see the ranges of obesity right here, the body mass index, 20%, um, 22%, um, 25%. In 1994, there were almost, well, this percentage is percentage of people that are obese or have more than 30 of body mass index. In 1994, there were few states that had maximum 18% of people who were obese. The year 2000, now we see like 22, 25% of the people were obese. 2010, look at this. All these states, more than 26% of the population were obese. And how this happened in 10, 20 years, less than 20 years. And in the same way, you see how the diabetes has increased in percentage from 1994 and 2010. So there's a correlation of obesity and diabetes, diabetes type 2 especially. It's very, it's very dangerous if a kid has diabetes type 2 because, again, same thing. It will be hard to control later on, and uh, diabetes will cause damage to the heart, to the kidney, and to the brain sometimes. And these are some factors that are especially prevalent in our society that increases the risk for obesity like there are so many good foods right you go out and you can eat whatever you want from fast food fine restaurants hawaiian barbecue whatever you need whatever you want you can eat working longer hours less time to make good food you don't have time to to cook There's few people cook at home just eat out and what's, what's, what's the best to eat? Well, you don't think about what's the best or the healthier food. You think about what's closer and uh, what's cheaper. And that's usually a dollar menu. <laughs> Super combos. We don't exercise and we justify ourselves. Oh, it's my job. I don't have time for exercise. That's my job. It's complex. It's not so simple. But there are some things that can be done and they are, they are, they are being done to prevent this problem. Okay, questions, comments? Lab exam will start at 6.
Yeah. So um, blue color in Bennett's um, test means that there's no stock. I mean, yeah, there's no uh, sugar, right? Ben, does it say it again? Uh, blue color in um, Bennett's test mm -hmm, mm -hmm. means that there's no sugar. There's no maltose. Or no sugar. Yeah. Mm -hmm.